So for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at what in Buddhist psychology is called the three marks of existence. Um, and if you weren't here for the other two, it doesn't matter. These are all <laughs> just, just listen to this week. They work <laughs> just fine. And I also want to put in, I use that word Buddhist psychology to reflect how I relate um, to these very ancient teachings um, that have had a really profound influence on my life. So I don't mean that in any, in any other way other than this is, this is how I relate to these teachings. These three marks of existence are the first ones impermanence. Uh, we talked about that using the example of Michael J. Fox uh, and his um, journey with Parkinson's and particularly a couple years ago going into a very dark place and how it was his own reckoning with mortality, um, the impermanence of things, which brought him back to gratitude and back into a sense of optimism of how to live a life well um, that felt like it had meaning and mattered. Second one we looked at last week, this idea of non-self or no true independent self, um, the interrelatedness of all things. Um, the one, one definition that I really like, nothing exists in and of itself without dependencies. So one way I've heard this is impermanence is about everything in time changes. The non-self is everything in stuff changes, <laughs> um, is part of change. So the third one, the one that we're going to look at today, is that there is a certain kind of suffering that is a natural part of life in the same way that impermanence is a natural part of life and that non-self is a natural part of life. Um, the old Pali word, the language of the Buddha um, for it is dukkha. And in a lot of ways, that word dukkha um, is uh, more useful than this common translation of suffering. It actually means a whole lot more than, than our um, English understanding of the word suffering, um, but points to that unease. And we'll talk about that more. But I just want to say, I really like the way Tricycle Magazine puts concisely the importance of these three marks of, of existence. Um, so um, their way of framing these is that according to Buddhism, we suffer not because there's anything inherently wrong with us, but simply because we misunderstand the nature of reality. That's a helpful, really helpful statement. I'm gonna say it again. We suffer not because there's anything inherently wrong with us. That's kind of the beauty of working with these three marks of reality. They're a part of life and accepting them as a part of life unloads the personal nature. <laughs> of what we take as the problem. It's just, it's just life. It's not, I'm personally flawed. This is just part of what's here. 
We suffer not because there's inherently anything wrong with us, but simply because we misunderstand the nature of reality. So these are not meant in any way to be a dogma that you have to believe in. Rather, they are an invitation to explore what happens for you. I mean, it was profoundly changing for Michael J. Fox when he contemplated the reality of mortality. What happens for you when you bring these three marks of existence into your daily contemplation in a way that has a lot of wisdom and, and care? So to turn to this third one, uh, reality of suffering in life, this one's very related to um, what also in Buddhist, Buddhism is called the Four Noble Truths. And if you start studying the old teachings of the Buddha, you will find he likes numbers a lot. <laughs> the three marks of existence are related to the four noble truths, which is related to the eightfold path. Um, so it's, it's a very, very logical um, thing. But these four noble truths are a real foundational teaching of Buddhist psychology. Um, and I'm gonna name them here. And what we will probably do is um, after we finish this, we'll probably move to the Four Noble Truths because I think it's just a very helpful lens to consider um, how to direct a life in a way that, that's useful. The first one, um, the one that is most often misunderstood um, is that suffering exists. That is a noble truth in this framework. Suffering exists. The second one is that there is a reason for suffering. The third one is that there is a way out of that suffering. And the fourth one is the path, um, the way out. So this third mark of existence that we're talking about and the first noble truth that suffering exists. That's what we're going to look at right now. This is often misunderstood as Buddhism is trying to say life is suffering. That's not what's meant by this. Uh, a better way of framing it is that suffering is a part of life. That misunderstanding is really, really, really common. When I was in college, I was a religion major. The religion of my upbringing wasn't meeting my, my needs. Um, and so in my religion major, I would take all these courses and, and have kind of like this open thought of, so what about this? What about this? What about this? Um, I got to the Buddhism course with a lot of excitement of, oh, this might be like my home. <laughs> and the way that it was taught by my professor, it took about one week of that class for me to write off the entire, <laughs> the entire teachings of the Buddha because it sounded so pessimistic and so negative. Um, and was very much presented in this place of life is suffering. But that's really a, um, a deep misunderstanding of, of a beautiful, radical potential held in these teachings. 
So in that same way that for Michael J. Fox, contemplating mortality was what brought him back into gratitude and optimism in life. There is a way that understanding dukkha or this idea of, of suffering that can be extremely freeing as well. So just one way, just in my own life, um, one experience for me with working with this as a mark of existence. Over and over, I have met just a basic reassurance that there's nothing wrong with me for experiencing dukkha in my life. Just like accepting impermanence is a natural part of life. Hard, really, really hard sometimes but not unnatural that things change, that there's a way that dukkha, sometimes really, really hard, can be a natural part of our existence. And that's a little bit loaded to say in that way. So we're gonna break that apart just a little bit. Um, but first off, in, reaction, in response to the American dream, that is that says basically happiness is possible as a linear uphill as a linear um, um, path of getting better and better and better and if something breaks that path then something's wrong that's just not reality there are always ups and downs with life and having some sort of expectation built on a reality that it only is good and should get better if it's going right is a setup for deep pain because pain's a natural part of life. So what about though when it's that truly deep suffering that some people um, experience and go through? It's the same thing. There is a way that learning to let go of the fight with whether or not something should be happening helps us get really clear about what is happening and therefore frees up a different possibility for responding kind of think of it as the doorway to empowered compassion. It is the invitation to work with reality instead of getting caught up in some fight against what's already happened. So in a lot of ways, I think of this teaching, um, the third mark, uh, one of these mark, the mark of existence around dukkha or the first noble truth. It's really interrelated with compassion with the strong heart that has the possibility of meeting what's here with a lot of wisdom. And I like the way Ram Das puts this. Um, he says, um, compassion, is, compassion in action is paradoxical and mysterious. It is absolute yet continually changing. It accepts that everything is happening exactly as it should and it works with a full-hearted commitment to change. It is an ability to reckon with the fact of suffering 
that actually opens this possibility of working with a full-hearted commitment to change. So I want to shift and talk a little bit about what's meant by the word dukkha, um, uh, most often translated as suffering. Not the best word, because what the Buddha was really pointing to was much more than what we associate as the, the hardcore suffering or pain of suffering. Instead, it is everything from that intense pain of suffering all the way through the entire gamut to a little background unease with the situation, um, a sort of unsatisfactoriness or um, a little edginess um, to something that, that's not entirely settled. All of that is, is encompassed by the word uh, dukkha. So the reckoning that we're invited to do is with all of these levels of unease that um, can be possible, that we experience often on moment-to-moment -moment, um, um, living life. In Buddhist psychology, the root of this background, even a little bit of edginess um, um, to full-blown suffering is considered to be clinging trying to attach to something in some way that ultimately doesn't work. So for example, in the midst of a truly pleasant moment, there can be this edge of dissatisfaction underneath it because we know it won't last and we want more of it. We want it to last, we want it to stay and we want more of that. So even right in the heart of a pleasant moment, Sometimes we're, um, we're, we're still caught up and it's not enough and I want more. I also, I really like the interplay of Buddhism and neuroscience. That place just fascinates me. And this is one place that I think neuroscience would actually define that little bit of edginess a little differently and probably define it as fear amygdala base, part of the fight, flight, freeze survival system. And I had an interesting clarification of what people hear when I say the survival system and the fight, flight, freeze. When I say that, I don't mean just those really hardcore moments of fight, flight, freeze when I know I'm caught up in a reaction storm. It's everything from that really hardcore reactive aversion to a truly pleasant moment that has this little bit of edginess underneath it that might be defined as a fear that, but it's not gonna last, but this is actually too good to be true. But I have all of these other fears that are too loud to be able to, to, be able to experience the pleasant that's here in this moment. So I really think of this idea of clinging or fear or fear as two sides of the same coin. When I pay attention to my own sense of dukkha arising, I find both of these very helpful, very useful as a means to kind of pause and ask, huh, sometimes it's what am I clinging to in this moment? 
is actually not helpful. Or other times the question is much more clear. What is it that I'm, I'm afraid of? What, what is the fear that's here? Both of those really help me shine light into a place that needs attention and needs care. Another definition of dukkha that I recently read that I love and it's been very useful for me, um, suffering or dukkha as the result, the result of the mind unable to accommodate its experience. That, that has been kind of a game changer in certain situations for me to be able to think of the suffering that I'm experiencing in a certain moment being the result of my sense of confusion about how to meet what's happening and that sense of confusion bouncing off into this reactivity of an anger or a fear story or whatever. It really puts the focus of the dukkha back in the right place. Um, not about that thing that happened, but my confusion of how to be wisely and compassionately with it. So I'll give an example. I had a um, uh, someone that I care deeply about, a family member do something not so long ago um, that just, you know, and I'm sorry to use this expression, but we have our reactions and there it is just brought up for me a sense of revulsion um, um, towards, towards the person doing this thing in that moment. Um, which, which was really painful and very unsettling about, you know, so therefore, how do I, how do I react in this? So bringing up this definition about the mind unable to accommodate this experience meant that I could see that the real struggle actually wasn't with the fact that they did this thing. My real struggle was with my confusion around my emotions and my reactivity around what happened. It was my inability to find an inter my own internal footing with what happened and know how to wisely interact with it. That was an enormous relief. I still didn't know how to wisely interact with it, um, but it was much easier to be with a sense of confusion about my anger or my aversion than it was to live the story of you are a bad person and I'm mad at you. It really um, brought the focus back to a place that I could see compassionately, wisely working with the situation instead. So I would just want to name one other thing around um, where this teaching can get misunderstood as suffering is a natural part of life. And this is particularly important when it's really, when suffering is really bad or, or hard. It never means to diminish or discount the depth of suffering that someone's going through with some sort of glib um, statement of suffering's a part of life. You just need to get over it and move on. 
That's not what this teaching is meant to point to at all. I remember years ago, I had a long-term Buddhist practitioner ask me how I was doing. And so I started honestly naming that I was kind of in a place of suffering and, and saying what was, what was present. And I'll never forget the way he started to get frustrated at me and, and shaking his head and said, but Lindsay, don't you remember? So this is everything you're naming is impermanent. It's not going to last. You just need to get over it and move on. <laughs> that is an absolute misunderstanding of what this teaching is about. And the way you know you're in the realm of misunderstanding is if what's coming up is not a doorway to compassion, is not a doorway to deepening sense of connection um, and akinment. So I want to close with um, um, just a short quote from Sylvia Borstein, Borstein, who can so beautifully like wrap up the inner an inner essence of a teaching. Um, and when she one article when she was talking about working with this this third mark with this mark of existence about suffering as possible and how, how to hold it in the mind with the teachings that peace is also possible. Um, suffering exists and peace is possible and how to hold that dichotomy. Um, and so what she says is, when the mind is able to surrender to the truth, grieving happens and suffering lessens. But there's no timetable for that to happen. And the only possible response I can have is compassion for myself and for other people. Maybe that truth that we suffer in spite of knowing that peace is possible contributes to our sense of kinship. This sense of feeling like I am accompanied that I sometimes experience in a crowd of strangers. There is this radical possibility of embracing life as it is that brings us back into connection with all that is around us as well. So let's pause for just a minute. Maybe that truth that we suffer in spite of knowing that peace is possible contributes to our sense of kinship, the sense of feeling like I am accompanied that I sometimes experience in a crowd of strangers. Thank you.